You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Christians are people who live on a different planet from everybody else. Uh, when the world is terrifying and bleak, we are people who are cheerful and confident in God's promises. When people can't stop talking about an election, we can't stop talking about the love of Jesus Christ. When people can't stop scrolling through their feeds, we can't stop reading our Bibles. When everyone else seems focused on marriage and career and family and retirement, we are focused on the kingdom of God. And when everybody else can't make it through the day without their phones. We can't make it through the day without prayer. When everyone else just seems to have more and more enemies, we only seem to have friends. When the world is hopeless, we are people with a living hope. And I saw some of you smile at funny points throughout that. So is that not all completely true? Shouldn't it be, though? Couldn't it be? Well, there's a guy named Peter who thinks it should be and that it could be. And the Peter I'm talking about is one of Jesus' best friends, and one of the 12 disciples who used to follow him day in and day out, one of the OG Christians, the original crowd. And this guy did a lot of really remarkable things. And if you ever read the Gospels, you'll find that you fall in love with Peter about the same point that you get really annoyed with Peter. It's sort of always right together. He's always at the edge of bumbling and brilliance. He says the right thing at the wrong time, or he says the the wrong thing at the right time or in the right way. There's one moment actually where Peter pulls out a sword to defend Jesus from the cross. Let the revolution begin. And Jesus tells him to put it away because there's nothing revolutionary about swords and the revolution starts on the cross. And Peter watches this happen and he sees the risen Lord Jesus and it changes everything. And he goes from being this sort of peasant fisherman with really no clue about the kingdom of God to being a leader and a teacher and a preacher and a pastor and a missionary. And he writes these remarkable letters to the early church, some of which we still have. And they're so good, actually, that it leads some people to wonder whether or not Peter actually wrote them because the Greek is so good and the thinking is so clear. And this just doesn't make sense from somebody who never went to school as a peasant fisherman in Galilee. And Peter would say, and I think you and I would say, that when you get to know Jesus, it changes everything. And Peter writes this letter that we're going to be reading for the next few weeks. It's called First Peter in the Bible. And the letter is worth reading, really, because we want to get to know our Bibles. As a church, we go through books of the Bible because we think it's worth reading our Bibles. But it's worth reading because Peter is talking about the kind of Christians that we want to be. He's talking about the, the kind of followers of Jesus that we really want to become. And the whole book of First Peter is really talking about being on a mission of hope. He's inviting us into being on a mission of hope. And so that's the new series we're starting today. So if you would, turn with me to First Peter. It's toward the back of your Bibles. You'll actually need a Bible. And you're going to want to leave a bookmark in here uh, because we're going to kind of close it and then come back to it. But also because for the next few weeks as we go through this series, it's worth reading this book. Uh, reading it over and over and over again. Showing up with questions. It's okay. You're not spoiling it. Right, showing up curious about things and, and waiting to hear me talk about it and watching if I dodge something and keeping me accountable. Uh, reading maybe in the study notes of your Bibles or going to your community groups and be able to discuss these things. So this is First Peter, uh, starting at verse 1. 
starting a new series called On a Mission of Hope. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen, the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We'll stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hope is a horrible thing. I don't know who decided to package hope as a virtue because it's not. It's a plague. Hope is like walking around with a fish hook in your mouth and somebody just keeps pulling it and pulling it and pulling it. The novelist, Ann Patchett. Now, I don't agree with everything she just said. I don't think hope is a plague. It's definitely a virtue. But that hope will ruin your life. Yeah, that seems accurate. Hope will ruin your life. Hope, by definition, means that you are longing for a reality that does not yet exist. Someone who is completely satisfied with their life has no hope. If you are completely satisfied with your life, you have no hope. There is an inverse relationship between hope and satisfaction. Uh, the more you hope, the less satisfied you will be. Actually, I graphed this for you. Um, you check the math at some point. There's an inverse relationship between hope and satisfaction. And the more we hope, the more we long for a different world, the more we long for a different reality. And Peter is saying that you and I, we have been born again. We have a brand new kind of life, both in quality and in quantity. A brand new kind of life that is characterized by hope. The kind of hope that even death cannot touch. The kind of hope that is alive in Jesus Christ. As surely as Jesus is alive, our hope is alive. And hope has a way of changing the way you look at the world. It changes the way we look at our lives. It can make us... Uh, less satisfied with what we have because we long for a different reality. But it can also change the way we see our identities. And Peter intends to change the way we see our identities in hope. I want to direct you back to the way the letter begins. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen, the exiles in the dispersion. That's you and that's me. Now, those are three words that don't really go together. And those are three words that you wouldn't necessarily want, at least all of them applied to your life. And Peter would tell you that hope will change the way that you see them. And so we're going to talk about each word, uh, but in reverse order. So first, dispersion. Uh, the dispersion is, uh, in Greek, the word is diaspora. And if you meet Jewish people, even today, uh, they will talk about themselves as being part of the diaspora. Uh, what it means is that you aren't in Israel, even though you belong to Israel. You're not a part of well, the country of Israel, even though you're part of the tribe of the Jews. Now, people even today think of themselves as part of the dispersion, the diaspora. And this is a very, very old word. It's a very biblical word. And it's intimately connected to that word exile, but we're only talking about being dispersed. 
another good definition for it would just be people who've been scattered. And the people of Israel a long time ago were scattered. In 587 B.C., uh, the nation of Babylon came in and crushed Israel, wiped them off the map, tore down the walls, burned the temple, killed a lot of people, literally put hooks in their bodies and dragged them away. And when they dragged them away into Babylon, they scattered them intentionally to try and make them forget that they were ever Jews, to try and make them forget who they were, to try and make them forget who their God was, to try to make them forget hope. But the thing about hope is that it tends to thrive in the most miserable of circumstances. Because hope, by definition, means that you cannot be satisfied with your circumstances. And so the people of Israel, when they were at their most scattered and most miserable, they found that God did some of his best work. And Peter calls us the scattered, the dispersed. And you and I, we live in a really scattered time. Not just because we have cell phones in our pockets that are constantly dinging us with notifications and trying to get our attentions about emails that we've missed and Twitter updates and things that are happening in the news and all the Netflix shows that we're kind of behind on and all the other things that people have told us about podcast-wise that we know that we need to catch up on and it just sort of feels like we're never, ever, ever going to be present to where we are because we're always behind. And when you add into that the number of things in our life that are supposed to make our lives easier and make them work quicker and better and give us more and more time. The truth is, most of the time, they just give us more time to do more things, and so we feel more rust and scattered than we've ever been before, despite all of the time-saving and, well, ease-making devices in our lives. And we have families, and we have careers, and we have children, and every now and again we think, I probably should be somebody who's focused on, on what God is talking about in the Bible, but I just don't have time, and I'm so scattered, I'm all over the place. And when you look at the church in America, you see how scattered it is. How rarely we talk about the things we should be talking about. How rarely we do the things we should be doing. How rarely we pay attention to the sort of stuff that this book talks about. The church in America is thoroughly scattered. And you and I, what hope do we have as we're scattered across Phoenix in different jobs and completely different fields and trying to work for the kingdom of God alongside people who don't necessarily believe in Jesus and trying to be witnesses wherever we can. Well, to you and I, Peter writes this letter. And he writes this letter with confidence that no matter how spread out we seem to be, no matter how alone we seem to be, that God is absolutely with us. And that we have every reason to hope that God has not abandoned us, but that we are actually placed where we are for a purpose. That it could be that for such a time as this, you are in exactly the right place, at exactly the right time, exactly the right job, and exactly the right relationship, that God is using you, even though you don't necessarily see it in the here and now. Hope has a way of changing the way you see your situation. No longer as scattered people, but as sent people out into the world. Peter is talking to a group of people who are literally scattered. Uh, the people in Pontus and Asia and Bithynia. I, actually, I mapped this out for you uh, because I thought it would be easier. Um, over there, uh, this is the place he's talking about. This is what you and I would call Turkey. Uh, but in the time of Rome, these are different sort of city-states. That's Israel. Down here is Africa. The blue is water. Okay, we're all on board. Over here, the boot-looking thing, that's Italy. Peter is probably writing this letter from Italy, from Rome. Uh, but at the end of the book, he's going to say he's writing from Babylon. Just to continue this theme that we are exiles living in a foreign land. And he is writing to these people who are far, far away, thousands of miles away. And we talk about these things as though they were books of the Bible. And it's not bad to call these books of the Bible. But we should remember that this was a letter. A book is something you can forget about on your Kindle. A book is something that you get dusty on your shelf. 
But a letter is something that arrives, a message with urgency that you're supposed to open and read. And the way this letter would have worked, Peter would have handed a letter to someone he trusted, to someone the churches would have trusted, and he would have sent that person with the letter in hand. There wasn't a mailman at the time. And he would have gone to each and every one of these places. He would have wandered around 30,000 square miles, all of Turkey, one person delivering a letter. And when he showed up, he wouldn't just hand them a piece of paper and move on. He would show up to worship on a Sunday. And he would wait till all the hymn singing was done and communion had finished, and he would stand up and he would read the letter out loud from beginning to end, as though it were a sermon, as though Peter had shown up in your church, in your community, and was preaching to you right here and right now. Across thousands of miles, this is a sermon being delivered. Across thousands of years, this is a sermon being delivered to you and me. No longer scattered people, but God's church, gathered together under the word of God. And what he's saying is it doesn't matter how spread out you are, God is using you right here and right now. And these people who are scattered, not just because they're you know, over a great distance, they're scattered because they were actually kicked out of Italy, most of them. Uh, you see, Peter is a pastor in Italy, and in the 40s AD, we know this not from the Bible actually, but uh, from an ancient historian named Suetonius, uh, there was this moment when the Emperor Claudius kicked a bunch of people out of Italy, and he kicked these people out of Italy because they were Jews and there were riots. And what Suetonius says is they were all rioting because there was some guy named Crestus who started a bunch of riots. He doesn't really know who Crestus is, but we do. Christ. Jesus Christ. You see, what he's talking about is there's a guy named Jesus who apparently a bunch of Jews were really excited about and a bunch of Jews were really angry about. Because in the early world, people didn't distinguish between Jews and Christians. They were all Jews. There were some Jews who didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, and there were some Jews who were sure that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, and they believed in him. And not only did they believe in him, but it changed the way they understood Judaism. In fact, they said that you could be Jewish without being circumcised. You could be Jewish without obeying the food laws. In fact, Judaism itself had changed, and it's not surprising that there were riots. Not surprising that there were huge fights between these two groups of people, the Jews and what you and I would call Christians. And so all of these people get kicked out of Rome, and some of them end up in Turkey because they were following Jesus. And Peter is writing to encourage some of these people he used to pastor as they've been kicked out of their country and kicked out of their homes. And he says, and I'm going to go down to verse 10 in chapter 1, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the person or the time of the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance to the sufferings destined for Christ, the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in regard to the things that have now been announced to you through those who brought you the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. See, what he's saying is that some of our favorite books of the Bible were written when people were exiled and scattered across the world. They're the books of the Bible that talk most longingly about the Messiah. Those prophets toward the end of the Old Testament that are most excited about the coming Messiah, those people are in exile or watching exile happen. And they are longing for the day that God would finally fix things, that God would finally make things right. These people who have this ridiculous hope have it because they believe that God will send someone. And they wrote these things. They saw these things because God revealed to them in their hope that he had not abandoned them. He revealed to them mysteries which you and I live in, into which angels long to look, he says. 
And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. That these people in these miserable situations were serving you because they saw something that God was going to do in Jesus and how God would change your life in Jesus Christ. And you and I who live in this time here and now are serving not ourselves, but someone else. Someone else who may come to know Jesus because of our hope, he said. And so we are not scattered. We are gathered people. We are sent people because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Still, we're exiles, he says. People who live where we don't actually belong. Uh, people who aren't in our homes anymore. Now, the word exile is one that you and I probably know, maybe from history books. Yeah. Napoleon was exiled. Australia is a nation of exiles. It's a rock in the middle of the ocean that the British would send their prisoners. We just don't want to deal with you anymore. Here you go. Edward Snowden was sort of exiled. We don't really exile people on purpose anymore. And so the problem with the word is it's sort of losing meaning in our time. An immigrant doesn't really do it. Illegal immigrant maybe would tell you about the status, that this, but it's still not really great. Foreigner is good, but doesn't imply that people have left. And so I think refugee, refugee might be a good definition for this word. And these are people who have left not because they want to, but because they have to who are not in their home and who are in a place where they maybe have no rights or few rights, where they're not citizens, where they are clearly foreign, people who are where they do not belong. And these people who've been kicked out of Italy have been exiled. And hope is not something that teaches them to hate where they live. It's something that teaches them to love where they live, to embrace the situation that they're in, in the belief that God will work something better in the confidence, actually, that God is moving in this difficult and dark situation. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the exiles were in a pretty miserable situation in Babylon. And the prophets who speak to these people don't say, well, when you're in Babylon, hate your neighbors and hate the Babylonians and hate the situation and do everything you can to pretend like you're living somewhere else. Live in a sort of wishful thinking world. Live in the past. Remember how it used to be better and, and wish that it were better now. No, what they actually say, what Jeremiah says, is what you should do is to build houses and to plant vineyards and gardens. You're going to be here a while. Get married. Seek the peace of the city. In its peace you will find your peace. Seek the peace of the people you are exiled among. Because in their peace you'll find your peace. Because people who hope, they don't look at the situation they're in and go, look how bad it is. What they do is they look at the future and say, look how good it's going to be. And that actually makes the present reality look kind of shabby and mediocre. But hope is not about being more miserable where we are. Hope is about being more excited about where we're going than satisfied with where we're at. You understand the difference? Despair and misery is not, well, they're incompatible with hope. Hope actually has a way of ruining despair and misery, the same way that hope has a way of ruining our lives. Uh, not by telling us that our lives are so bad, but by telling us our future is so good that our lives are mediocre by comparison. And Peter, when he talks about it, says some really strange things uh, to these exiles. So this is verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring to you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you invoke his Father, the one who judges all people impartially, according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. Skipping to verse 22. Now that you've purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply 
and from the heart. It's a strange thing. Peter talks to people who are exiles as though they have all the power in the situation. That's not at all true of exiles. Literal exiles have no power. That's how exile works. But these people, they have a choice, he says. A choice about how to live their lives. They can conform to the world around them, or they can live differently. They can be holy as I am holy. Holiness talks about being different from your surroundings. The people that Peter is talking to, some of whom have literally been exiled, could end their exile right now. They only have to do one thing. Stop being Christians. And then go home. That's it. All they have to do, they stop being Christians, they can go home, they can live in their houses, they can live their lives, they can be left alone. They can go home. Peter is also writing to people, some of whom are not exiled, but have grown up in Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia and Asia. And these people are here, well, we're not exiles. I grew up here. This is my hometown. That's my house. That was my father's house, my father's house, my father's 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 house. It goes all the way back. How can I live as an exile when I belong here? And what Peter is saying is that you don't belong here. And I don't belong where I am. And no one who is a Christian belongs where they are. We belong to a completely different place. We are citizens not of this country, but of the kingdom of God. Paul will say that elsewhere. He'll also say that we're ambassadors of the kingdom of God. That you and I, though we live here and though we speak this language and though we look like we belong here, are in fact people of a different country. And the instant we got to know Jesus, the instant we were taken captive by hope, we became citizens of another place. Again, if you're completely satisfied with where you are, you have no hope. People who are longing for the kingdom of God, people who have hope, do not belong here. That's how hope works. That's how exile works. And so we need to live differently. Uh, to be people who love so radically, that's what it says in verse 22, but love so radically that people genuinely will say, you must not be from around here. That people will hear us talk about each other and talk about our enemies and talk to other people and say, I'm sorry, I don't recognize that accent. You must not be from around here. That people will see the way we interact with one another on social media or the way we move at work or our willingness to serve in ways that nobody really cares about, nobody really sees, and we never get rewarded for. And they'll say, I'm sorry, you, you must not be from around here. Where are you from? I've been spending the week, actually, with Chris Waters. Some of you know him. He's been a part of the church. And, uh, he moved to England about four or five months ago. He's in town for a wedding. And Chris lives in England because God has called him there. And he's in this interesting role of trying to figure out what exactly God's calling him to do and how to be a witness in this strange place. But everywhere he goes in England, he has to carry a little card. And that little card identifies him as a resident alien. It's really important to the British that he always have this on him. And he says, it's really funny because nobody would ever mistake me for being British. I mean, we speak the same language, and still, it, you're not from around here, are you? There's just everything about what he says, everything the way that he moves, the things that he does, the kind of food that he eats, everything about him just doesn't fit the place where he is. And he is obviously an exile. And you and I, Paul and Peter is saying, you and I are called to be people who live so differently, who love so differently, who obey Jesus so differently. People will say, you, you must not be from here. Where are you from? As exiles, we are people who do not belong to this world, who do not care about the things that the world cares about, not because we hate the world, not because we hate our neighbors, actually because we love our neighbors so well, actually because we love the world so well that people will be confused by how strange our priorities are 
how they seem to both line up and seem to cross paths on a regular basis with the sorts of things that the world values. There's an old uh, Switchfoot song that I like, and it, it kept ringing through my head this week, so I thought I would remind you. Some of you don't know who Switchfoot is, which bums me out. Uh, it was a band in the 90s uh, that maybe was cool. I'm not really sure. Uh, thank you. I'll, I'll take it. They wrote a song called A Beautiful Letdown, and uh, these words uh, stuck with me. In a world full of bitter pain and bitter doubts, I was trying so hard to fit in, fit in, until I found out that I don't belong here. I don't belong. I will carry a cross and song where I don't belong. Peter is calling us to be people who live as though we don't belong here. Not because we don't seek the peace of the place we're in. Not because we're not doing everything we can to bring the kingdom of God to the city of Phoenix. But because we know that there is something so much better out there. There are some people in our world who live as though this life is all that there is, this world is all that there is. And what we know is that we have a living hope that there is another world that is breaking in slowly and steadily into this one. There is another life breaking in slowly and steadily into this one. And that everywhere we plant our feet, everywhere you and I move, becomes a small piece of the kingdom of God. We don't belong here. And we shouldn't live as though we do. Our ancestors in the United States of America have often lived as though to be a Christian is to live a happy life in the American dream. They have equated the two things. And we know better. We have, we've probably known better for a really long time, but we know better. That actually to be a Christian often means running afoul of the American dream. That it will mean living as though we do not belong here. Being strange, strange people in this particular place. Known, not because we're so obnoxious, and not for the things that we hate, but how we love differently and how we live differently and how we speak differently. That's what Peter is saying. He's not saying be really annoying to all of your Roman neighbors in Turkey. He's saying do what you can to live as faithful people, obedient to God. You know that there is a God out there who judges people impartially, so live your lives as though that were true. Because God has chosen you. Uh, I'll tell you, I was reading this book and I got as far as the fifth word in Greek, and I just stopped. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the chosen. Your tr translation of the Bible might not have it right there, but it, it actually says in Greek, to the chosen, to the exiles, to the scattered. Those three words really don't go together. To be chosen is to be God's favorite people, God's special possession. To be exiled is to be miserable and kicked out of your home. To be scattered is to be lost and alone. And Peter is holding all three of those things together in hope. That when Jesus chose us, he immediately scattered us into the world. That the, in the moment Jesus chooses us, we become exiles. Because in the moment Jesus chooses us, we join a brand new country. Something completely different happens to us. And we no longer belong here because we belong to Jesus. That's what it means when he says things like we've been destined through the Father to be obedient to the Spirit because we've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. And he continues on, actually. Uh, this is verse 18. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without defect or blemish, he was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him, you have come to trust in God 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are set on God. That's really important. Now, sometimes we believe that it's up to us to choose Jesus. It's up to us to live as exiles, to be really faithful people, and it all depends. It all depends on how well we live. And what Peter would say is it doesn't really depend on how well you live. It all depends on Jesus. If the weight is off your shoulders. The weight is entirely on Jesus' shoulders. Long before you ever chose him, God chose you in Jesus Christ. Which means that when you fail to live as an exile, when you struggle to have hope, that, that doesn't mean that you're a terrible person. It doesn't mean that, that Jesus doesn't love you anymore. What that means is that you are in need of getting closer to Jesus. Don't ever try to have more faith. Don't ever try to have more faith. Just get closer to Jesus. Spend more time with Jesus, and you will find that you have more faith. Don't ever try to have more hope. Don't ever try to have more hope. Get closer to Jesus. Spend more time with Jesus, and you will find that hope just erupts out of you, changes you, transforms you inside and out. It all depends not on you and on me, but on Jesus and on the redemption that Jesus brings into our lives. Hope will ruin your life. It absolutely will. Jesus will ruin your life. By the way, they ruin our lives by fixing our lives. That's how they ruin us. I have a friend who loves garage sales, yard sales. Anybody else? Oh, yeah, there we go. Okay, some people just, it's a wonderful thing, and you go all the time because you see the potential in things. It's a wonderful thing. So my buddy loves to go to garage sales. His favorite thing is to go to the tools because he's just confident that there's always going to be some great tool that an elderly man gave to his son and sat in a garage, and I, I can restore it. But his favorite thing in the tool section is to always go to the saws, the hand saws, the sort of wooden-handled, old, like, long, triangular things with the broken teeth and really rusty with a hole in the front. And he buys as many of them as he can. The older, the better. The rustier, the better. You can get four or five for a buck. And he'll bring them home, and he will painstakingly remove the handle and clean up the rust and the grime and the years until the, the steel shines. And it'll carefully draw a pattern on each saw. He can get four to eight patterns, depending on how big the saw is. And then he will carefully punch out the pattern. And he'll file down the edges, and he'll punch holes in each one, and attach a wooden handle, and slowly create a really sharp edge. Until what he has is an artisan handmade hunting knife that can be sold for between $100 and $1,000, depending on how nice the handle is. That's exactly what the word redemption means in this passage of Scripture. It's an economic word that God has bought us for a price. And that price is not something simple like silver and gold. It was the blood of Jesus. And that Jesus, when he purchases us, takes us home and restores us. Slowly and steadily, he actually draws out a pattern for our lives that we are to follow. And that in Jesus Christ, you and I become beautiful, valuable, sharp, and dangerous. That we become people that are extraordinarily useful in the world. And it would be insane, Peter says in verse 14, to try and be conformed back to the pattern we used to live in. To try and sort of fit back into the old saw mold we were a part of. Or to try and grow rusty again. Who would ever try to live? Who, who that truly understands the hope that they've been called to would ever try to wander back into that life? And if you ever catch yourself doing it, remember what it is that Jesus has done for you. 
Remember the pattern that he has set before us, the way of the cross, and the kind of life that we have been called into. Friends, you and I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it gives us a, an unshakable hope, a living hope. Hope that not even death could kill in Jesus. And so we find ourselves as exiles, living in a world where we don't belong, scattered in a world, but really people who belong to a different world people who have been sent for a particular purpose, people who at such a time as this know that we are chosen by God and there's nothing, nothing that can take that away from us. Folks, we are people with a living hope and that sends us on a mission out in the world of people who are in desperate need of this hope, knowing that the people we meet are not junk, but actually just in need of some good restoration. People for whom Jesus has already died People whom Jesus has already chosen, they just need to hear about the hope that we have in Christ because it changes everything. It changes the way you see the world and so we can live as exiles and scattered people so long as we know that we are chosen in the living hope of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus.